Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Amen. Well, you are all to be congratulated for being present today. You get gold stars, and um, I'll think of something else to give you before we're done. But uh, it's good to see you on this wet, messy Sunday morning. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to John chapter 20. We're going to be looking together at verses 24 through 31. We're coming to the end of our study of the Gospel of John. And um, we're looking one final time at John 20. Now, here's what I want you to see. John chapter 20 is really the final episode in the Gospel of John. There are 21 chapters, but this is the final episode. For all intents and purposes, John 21 is an afterword or an epilogue for the Gospel. So we find the apex of the Gospel in this chapter, and we actually find it in our passage for the morning. Now, let me set a little context here for us. A week prior to the events of our passage, on the first Easter Sunday, Mary had seen the risen Christ. She has told the apostles, and Peter and John rush to the empty tomb. They go in, they look in, John believes, Peter is still wondering. The disciples meet behind locked doors for fear of the Jewish leaders who insisted on Jesus' death. The risen Jesus on this first Easter Sunday morning, he passes through solid matter. He appears before the disciples, shows them his hands, shows them his side, all to prove that his body has been raised and transformed, and he is the same Jesus they knew, just different. He gives them a mission to go and tell what they've seen and what it means. He equips them with the Holy Spirit. He gives them their uh, ministry of, of offering on his behalf through the gospel, forgiveness or retention of sins. But the odd thing is, one of the remaining 11 disciples is missing, Thomas. And that's where we pick up our story for the morning. The scripture says, beginning at verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came and appeared the first time. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. And in the original language, this is, they told him repeatedly. They said to him again and again and again, we've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. Really, no kidding. We've seen the Lord. We've seen his hands. We've seen his side. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will not believe. No matter what you say, no matter what your witness, your testimony, I will not believe. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. 
Don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, what we have here is the longest story uh, or the longest, the, the largest bit of information we have about the apostle Thomas. He's relatively unknown, but he's made famous by this story. He's known, of course, as Thomas the doubter, the great doubter or a doubting Thomas. That's the moniker that our culture applies to him. And, and, and it refers to anyone who trusts or believes things before having the proof, uh, who rarely trusts or believes things without having the proof uh, that they need to believe. But I want you to see something with me this morning. Doubt is not Thomas's problem. Now, here's the reality. Faith in Christ always comes with facts, solid facts, facts worth trusting in, facts worth putting your, your faith in. But there are times when life challenges our faith and what we experience and the faith facts we've been given don't always seem to line up. And that's why we come out with questions like, if God loves me, why did he let this happen to me? That's where those kind of questions come from. As a result, we can experience doubt. Here's what I want you to see. The reality is that uh, faith in God actually can grow with doubt. And doubt can actually be a healthy thing for those who believe. Uncertainty about how something God has said or promised could be true or could apply to my life can actually deepen faith whenever we choose to continue to trust him and then seek him for answers. Think just for a minute about Mary. When the angel came to tell her that she would be with child, Mary poses a question to the angel. It's a simple and honest expression of doubt. She says, how can these things be since I'm a virgin? She's seeking answers in order to believe more and to believe better. That's doubt, and that's very healthy. As she pursues that question with the Lord, she comes to believe on a deeper level. But Thomas's problem isn't a simple uh, or honest feeling of uncertainty. What is it then? Uh, is it unbelief? Well, no, we know that Thomas believes. Unbelief is simply a refusal to believe in, in God or to have faith in God altogether. That's not Thomas's problem. Jesus tells us, if you look at verse 27, what Thomas's problem is. It is not unbelief. It is not doubt. It is rather disbelief. It's an unwillingness to accept that something God has said or something God has done or something that God has promised is true or real without first seeing it. Jesus tells us Thomas's problem is disbelief. And so while Jesus says that unbelief separates people from God and leaves them under his judgment for sin, disbelief, Thomas's story shows us, actually alienates believers from fellowship with God and alienates them from his blessing. Now, I have a question, though. Where does disbelief come from? How is it that a person uh, like Thomas uh, lives their lives, spends their days uh, uh, believing in Jesus, trusting Jesus, 
And then suddenly there comes an event into his life or her life where they begin to disbelieve. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? When we look at our passage, the passage doesn't tell us explicitly, but it gives us some powerful, powerful hints. Thomas's absence, for example, from the other disciples. Christ has been crucified. The uh, uh, Judas, uh, the betrayer, is dead. There are 11 disciples left. 10 of them are in an upper room on that Sunday morning at, at, at Easter. 10 of them, but not Thomas. What's going on with that? 10 of them are seeking probably some mutual security. The, the doors are locked. They're mutual encouragement. They've been through a lot. They're going through a lot. They're afraid of the Jewish leaders. And there they are. But where's Thomas? Where's Thomas? What's, what's going on with Thomas? Why is he not there? We're not told, but it's curious that he's not there. His response that we see in our passage to the other disciples' witness to the resurrected Christ also raises questions. Why is he so harsh? Why, why is he so uh, uh, surly? Well, I'm not going to believe. I will not believe until I put my finger in, in, his, in his hand, until I place my hand in his side. I will never believe. What, what's going on with, with this? This is a guy who earlier said to the rest of the disciples, when Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, and they knew that there was a chance Jesus would be killed, he was the guy that said, let's go with him and die. That, that was his level of commitment to Christ. So what's going on here? Where is this coming from? I'll tell you what I, I believe. I believe this is coming from one of disbelief's greatest sources. And one of disbelief's greatest sources, remember disbelief is an unwillingness to receive something God has said or done or promised as being true. I believe that one of the great sources of disbelief is at work here, and that source is something called disappointment. Disappointment. Thomas is just disappointed with God. Have you ever been disappointed with God? Disappointment is that uh, sadness. It's a, it's a feeling of loss that comes when there's a painful gap between what is and what we hoped for, between what's in our hands and what our hearts expected. There's the distance you know it, you've experienced it, you've felt it, but perhaps it's most powerful and most painful when we feel as if God has somehow let us down, when we feel as if somehow God has failed us, when he hasn't kept a promise, when he hasn't been true to his character, when he hasn't followed through on what he said he would do. We, we can be disappointed with God, and that is what I think we're seeing in Thomas. Yeah, he'd been a disciple in the making like the others. He'd seen the miraculous signs of Jesus. He'd heard his teaching. But the crucifixion seems to have seriously damaged his faith. He'd been excited by all the prospects of Jesus, all the things that he thought Jesus could do, would do. But now he's disappointed because this Jesus with all these prospects is now a Jesus who has passed away. On a cross. So he doesn't gather. When they come and tell him the joy they've experienced and what they've seen, Thomas dismisses them. 
And he seems to be saying, I cannot trust this Savior I cannot see. Now, I don't need to tell you how serious this is. By dismissing the resurrection, Thomas can miss the resurrection. By not believing in the resurrection, he can himself miss the resurrection. Now, I want you to see this. Dis disappointment with God isn't a sin, but it is a dangerous condition to be in. Why? Well, because disappointment with God very, very often and very easily creates a drifting from God. If somehow God does not meet my expectations, if I think he's not living up to his own standards, if I think somehow that he has, is proving himself to be less than what he said he would be or do less than what I thought he was going to do, then what, what that encourages in me is a drift away from him because I'm, I begin to think, well, I, can't, I cannot completely trust you. When somebody else disappoints you, do you stay close to them or do you tend to step away from them? What do you do? You tend to step away from them. Why? Because relationships are built on trust. And when trust begins to fail, I begin then to be more and more leery of you. I keep you at arm's distance. And we see that happening with, with Thomas and that is very often what happens when we're disappointed with God. We begin to drift from him. We begin to drift from his people. We begin to drift from his word. We begin to drift from prayer. And out of that drifting then comes a pretty natural disbelief, particularly in those things that we believe he's not living up to. But that disbelief ultimately can be um, so very damaging because out of it, ultimately comes despair. Because look, 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 when you come to faith in Christ, here's what you know. You know you need him because you are not personally enough in this life. You, you, you need a savior. You need a strong savior. You come to Christ. But if you begin to lose faith in Christ, what you're thrown back on is yourself. And if you are all you have in this life, then you are in a lot of serious trouble. And despair becomes your lot. If you can't trust God, who can you trust? It's a dangerous condition to be in. When God hands us something that seems to be less than what we expected, we can easily begin to question his motives, his care, what he's about, what he wants for us. We, be, we can begin to question what he can do. And it seems that Thomas's heart was set on a different kind of savior. He, he wanted a savior who wins. He didn't want a savior who, who lost. He, he wanted a savior who, who marched with victory, not died on a cross. And so he seems, if you will, stuck in disappointment. He seems to be doubting whether God can do what is good and best for him. Because of what he's seen happen to Christ at the cross, he, like all of us, can respond in some negative, destructive ways. A lot of us give up on God. We give up on living for God. We take up a kind of hostile position toward him. We distance, our, distance ourselves from him and his people. We can let disappointment lead to drift 
lead to disbelief and ultimately to despair. So what do you do when God disappoints you? Where do you go with that? What do you do when you start to lose faith in him? Those are good questions, but I want to offer to you that the better question is, what does Christ do when we lose faith in him? And that is what Thomas's story actually shows us. And we find out what we need to know about how Christ handles disbelief when it shows up in us. There are four discernible steps. And I want to unpack them for you quickly this morning that Christ takes with Thomas's disbelief that I want to say Christ will take with you when you find yourself disappointed with him. When you find yourself struggling with something that God has promised or said that he is or said that he would do. You'll notice in this passage, first of all, that Christ confronts disbelief graciously. He exposes it directly. He overcomes it personally. And finally, he provides for it continually. He confronts it, exposes it, overcomes it, and then provides for it. Let's take a look at that. Look with me first at verse 26. Christ confronts unbelief personally. The scripture says eight days later, that's the next Sunday after Easter Sunday, his disciples were inside again, and this time Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, I want you to see with me, this is a big moment. It's a big moment for everyone. Jesus, for the rest, has come a second time. That's a big moment, but it's biggest for Thomas. He missed that last time, and he's the one who said cynically, unless I see, unless I place, unless I place my finger, unless I place my hand, I will never believe. And here is Jesus in the flesh. And what I want you to see is he's coming himself directly to Thomas. He says, peace be with you. But he goes straight to Thomas, passes through a bolted door to answer Thomas's challenge. Now, here's what I want you to recognize with me right out of the gate. Thomas has drifted from Christ, but Christ is pursuing Thomas. And this is one of the most encouraging and sobering realities that we can glean from Thomas's story. Jesus simply will not leave those who are his alone when, un, when, when disbelief begins to set itself up, when disappointment begins to set itself up. One of the things you can absolutely be sure of is he will come. He will not let you drift forever. He will let you drift, but he will not let you drift forever. He will let you go so far, but he will only let you go so far. And he will come. He will come. And he does. Christ pursues Thomas because he refuses to lose Thomas. And that's one of the most encouraging realities in all of this story. Thomas is not, not conducting himself in a way that is appropriate, right, or good. He is not honoring Christ. And yet Christ still comes. Is that good news for anybody here or just for me? Christ still comes. Notice something else here as well. Notice how after confronting Thomas's disbelief by coming face to face with him personally, 
Christ exposes his disbelief directly. Verse 27 says, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Now notice Jesus shows himself to Thomas to expose his faithlessness. He's simply not going to let this disbelief stand in the life of, of this believer or any believer unchallenged. And so he exposes Thomas's disbelief and he does it with two commands. First, he says, reach and touch. Secondly, he says, believe. Now, reach and touch must have been absolutely chilling for Thomas. When, when Thomas first said these words, Jesus wasn't anywhere around. When he first said these words, only the 10 were around. And all of a sudden, the Jesus nobody can see shows up and he's telling him word for word what Thomas said. That'll get your attention. This has a, this Thomas has a risen savior. He's starting to see that. But he has a risen savior that he not only can see, but he, he now has a risen savior who can hear words when he's not present. What does that tell you? And so Jesus' message is, Thomas, okay, I heard you. I heard you challenge. Okay, go ahead. Do what you demand. Go ahead. Do what you said you had to do. Here are my hands. Here's my side. Now, we don't know if Thomas actually did touch Christ, but he certainly did see the wounds. Notice the second command that Christ gives him. He says, don't disbelieve, but believe. This also exposes Thomas's disbelief with a rebuke. In other words, Jesus says to him, Thomas, don't be this way. Don't be this way. D don't live denying and challenging me when, when I'm not what you want. Don't, don't live denying and challenging me when I give you something that you don't think is best. Don't be that way, but instead be the kind of person whose first choice is always to trust no matter what comes. You're going to have a lot of this in your life, Thomas. There are going to be a lot of things that come into your life that you don't want, that you don't like. If you understand my providence, if you understand my sovereignty, if you understand that I control all things, you're going to understand there are things that come into your life that pass through my hands that I permit. And you're going to have to trust me. Don't be this way. This is no way to live. You can't pick and choose what you like that I do. You can't pick and choose uh, uh, what about me is most attractive to you. Some people absolutely insist, and this, I won't spend a lot of time here, but there are some people who absolutely insist on having what I call a designer faith. They want to pick and choose the promises of God and the character qualities of God that they approve of and build a faith out of that. And they wind up getting a Jesus that is not the real Jesus. 
there is no designer faith that saves. And Jesus is saying, don't be that way. You can't make me what you want me to be. You've got to receive me just as I am. Don't be that way. Don't be disbelieving. Believe. Here I am. See me as I am. Believe. So plainly, God is working in a new way. Just as he had promised. Just as Jesus said that that he would do. But not as Thomas expected. And Thomas, rather than being disappointed with God, needs to get with God's program. He needs to give up on his own program. And he needs to simply say, I believe. Now, loved ones, I want to say this to you. When God isn't what we want, when he wants what we don't want, it seems to me we have two options, at least apparently. On the one hand, we think we have the option somehow to change him, to suit us. And we try that by challenging him or denying him or whatever. The other option is simply in the midst of that situation. When God isn't what we want, when he wants and delivers what we don't want, is to receive those things from his hand and ask ourselves what change he's trying to bring. Nothing he sends us is for nothing. Next, I want you to notice in verses 28 and 29 how Christ overcomes disbelief graciously. And after he has confronted him and exposed his his disbelief, notice how, how Jesus does this. He poses the challenge to him and then he waits. And Thomas answered him, verse 28, and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Oh, Thomas, listen, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. The Christ plainly has come graciously to overcome Thomas's unbelief is seen with Thomas's confession here. Thomas sees the wounds of Christ. He hears his words, but the wounds and the words are not all that he sees and they are not all that he hears. Hearing Jesus commands to him, Thomas realizes Jesus had heard his challenge. Jesus had heard his defiant words and yet Jesus still came. And yet Jesus still came. Jesus found him, sought him out. What he's realizing is he found him, sought him out to restore him. Thomas's mind and heart see something that his eyes cannot see. That this Jesus is truly full of grace and full of truth. This Jesus is doing what only Jesus would do. Only Jesus would love Thomas still in spite of Thomas's disbelief. So there's something more real that Thomas saw and felt that has absolutely nothing to do with his eyes and his hands and everything to do with his spirit or his heart. 
the experience of Jesus' presence, the experience of his knowledge, the experience of his all-forgiving love, the experience of his pursuit of Thomas brings an end to Thomas's disbelief. With Christ's presence, with Christ's pursuit, Thomas now knows and sees that God is with us, that God is for us, that God has come in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so Thomas says in reply to what he has seen, not just with his, his physical eyes, but what he has now seen with his mind and his heart, he says, my Lord and my God. Now liberal scholars say that he's swearing. He's not swearing. Some others say that he's just declaring. He's not declaring. What he's doing is he's confessing and he's talking to himself out loud and he's saying essentially, this is my Lord and this is my God. Physical sight made Thomas believe that Jesus was risen, but it was inward sight that made Thomas believe in Jesus as his Lord and his God and, uh, and as the one who is worthy of all of his life. Loved ones, I want to say to you that when disappointment and disbelief show up in your life, and they will, for some of you it's already here, for some of you it's been here for a while. When disappointment and disbelief show up in your life, of this you can be absolutely sure. If you are truly his in Christ, God the Father will send Christ again to find you, show himself afresh to you, challenge you, and change you. And when he's done, you will say again what Thomas said. This is my Lord. This is my God. And you will say, how could I ever have stopped trusting? One of, the, one of the qualities that has meant so much to me has been this quality of Jesus. No matter how far I drift, he always comes looking for me to say to me, hey, Steve, where have you been? One of the greatest experiences of my life over and over again has been the experience of finding Jesus, finding me when I've drifted away from him. I remember a hymn we used to sing when I was a boy. Um, it was a chorus, actually, that said, I, I, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see, I hear his words of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, I find he's always, does anybody else know this song? What's the last word? What? Near. 
He's always near. There's one more thing I want to show you today. I want you to see, and this is curious, and you'll have to stay with me just for a minute, but look at the end of verse 29 through verse 31. Thomas's confession leads Christ to confirm his faith with a, with a brief question, and then with what has been called the last and the greatest of the Beatitudes, words of blessing. Jesus asks, you believe that I've been raised because you have seen? And then he says, blessed or happy, accepted, are those accepted by God, blessed, happy, accepted by God are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas was asking, how can I believe in a savior I can't see? And Jesus is saying, you don't have to see in order to believe, which actually is incredibly good news for you and me. Thomas, Jesus says, you've seen with your physical eyes and, and with your spirit and you've believed and I'm glad, but there will be others who cannot see what you've seen, but will still believe as you believe, and they're going to be just as saved and just as accepted and just as blessed as you are right now. The point Jesus is making is this. Seeing is not the only way to believing. And aren't you and I glad? What's the other way? John supplies an answer as he closes out this final episode in his gospel. He says, look at verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written in this book, but these, these signs, these proofs from the life of Jesus found here that I've put down in this gospel, they are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, John realizes that this pamphlet, this evangelistic tract, thick as it is, he realizes that there will be people one day who hear these words, who read these words, who will never have had the benefit of seeing the risen Christ physically. And he knew they would have the same question Thomas had before he got to see the physical Jesus. How can I believe in a savior that I cannot see? And John says, here's how you can do it. And here's why you can do it. You can believe in a, in a risen savior you cannot see because of the witness I'm writing down in this book, which is the gospel of John, which is the word of God. The reason why you can do that is because saving faith starts here, ultimately not here. It starts with hearing, not seeing. There were a lot of people who saw Jesus, saw Jesus do miracles and and, and so on and so forth, and never believed. But true faith always starts here with the hearing. Let me unpack that for you quickly, if I could. What John is pointing us to is this simple truth. The same Christ who came to Thomas in a locked room has left himself a way to come personally still to break through not only our disbelief, but to break through unbelief. 
And the way that he's left to himself is this. The incarnate word comes to us still in the written word. And in the written word, in the word of God, in the gospels, we not only have a witness to the facts about Jesus and his death and his resurrection, but in that same word, we find him finding us. We find him showing us who he is. We find him challenging us. We find him changing us. And every time you open the book, and when you open the book with an open heart and a willing mind, you're going to find that the risen Christ finds you, shows you who he is through that word, challenges you. If you will continue to pursue him, he will change you. The risen Christ still meets people personally. He does it in his word, and he shows them all he ever showed Thomas and the others, which means we're just as saved, just as blessed, just as accepted as any one of those 11. So here's what I want you to see. Thomas's story shows us the Christ's final answer to our disbelief and, and, and even to the unbelief of the world is a living encounter with himself. And John makes plain that this living encounter still happens by way of his word. This is how Christ is met. This is how he's known. This is how he's seen. This is how he's received. When Christ comes to unbelievers in his word, the gospel by his spirit, it is always through his word. His presence always accompanies his word. So when his word is preached and taught and read and heard, his presence accompanies that. And when the gospel is declared, when the story of Christ, and particularly the heart of the gospel with the cross and the resurrection, he comes with power. This is why Paul says in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He asks, but but how? How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And then he asks, and how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And then he asks, and how are they to hear without someone preaching or telling them? And then he answers, listen, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. When you and I were saved, if you're a believer, It was through the word. It was through the gospel. It was through Christ meeting us there. It was through us finding Christ, finding us. Thomas's story also shows us that Christ's final answer to disbelief is the very same answer to unbelief. It's a living encounter with himself. And so by God's grace, Christ overcomes both personal unbelief and disbelief by finding us to restore us rather than condemn us. And he still comes and finds us in our places of disappointment and disbelief. He finds us as we are, where we are. And by the, by, by, by the miracle of his grace, we find him as he is, where he is, near us in his word. And all that remains for us to do when we're disappointed, all that remains for us to do when we're disbelieving is what we did at the very beginning, and that is to find him, 
finding us there in his word. And when we receive him as we find him and yield to him and confess, this is my Lord and my God and there is no other, we find our disbelief is turned to belief, our disappointment is undone, and we find again that Christ exceeds our expectations. He is and always does immeasurably more than we could ever ask or expect. And then grace upon grace, he takes us and uses us to help others hear the word of life and find the Jesus of life finding them. Here is the great problem of humanity, a lack of faith. Here is the great grace of Jesus, seeking sinners and unfaithful followers. Here is the great blessing of faith, life. Here is the great power of the word to make Jesus real to us every time we open it. And here is the great mission of the church and of every believer to take that same word in which we found Jesus finding us and sharing it with others so that they might find him the way we found him. And all I have to say to you is, I can't think of anything better. I can't think of any better way to live than to spend my days finding Jesus, finding me, and helping others find him as I have. That's what this new life is finally and ultimately all about. That's why they call this good news. So I want to invite everyone to stand across the room. I'll invite our response team to come. We want to have a time of response where you can respond to what God has said to you in his word this morning. So you can respond to the Christ who has met you in the, in, in the word this morning. We want to give you an opportunity to bring burdens to him, to bring your bad news, to bring your disappointments, to bring your hurt and pain and have somebody pray for you, pray over you, pray with you. We want to give you the opportunity today to respond to the good news of a Savior who lives, who pursues us in spite of us and has the power to save us and make us new. We want to create a moment here for believers who have drifted, who've been disbelieving, maybe even despairing, to hear him again. Say, don't disbelieve, believe. 
I'm not going to let you stay where you are. Come back to me. So whether you pray in your seat, whether you come for prayer, kneel down or pray with one of us, respond to what God has said to you this morning. Because I know when his word is preached, Jesus comes and we have to decide what we'll do with what he said to us through his word. Let's do that together right now. You come. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.